What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Three, two. Two. One. 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 Clap. <laughs> that did not work. Okay. <laughs> good enough. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. This is week three of uh, the Josh Marshall Podcast in Exile. I think it actually might be the fourth. Is it the fourth week or the third week? I was trying to... Time is just a construct now. (laughs) So wait, I, I, I guess it's... Wait, so we've been... We have been remote for three weeks, but I guess that may mean that this is the fourth episode we've done this way. I think so. I yeah. think, maybe. Um, in any case, it is April 1st, uh, a different, I mean, I kind of, you'd sort of, you'd sort of want someone, to, you'd want to wake up and say like, ah, April, April fools. <laughs> if only. This, this global calamity didn't happen. You know, you fell for it. Um, alas, that is not the case. Um, I'm here with my uh, co-hosts, David and Kate. We're, we're all remote from our uh, apartments and lairs and so forth. <laughs> all healthy um, so far. And all what's healthy that? So yeah, far. yeah. That mm-hmm. exactly. So so far, uh, we have. Th- this has not. Uh, uh, you know, n- no one on our uh, staff has gotten sick, which is really something we are grateful for. Since obviously most of the people who work for TPM work in New York City, work and live in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are grateful to uh, for that. I, I, I mentioned. We mentioned in the last podcast that we were relatively early to switch to remote work. Mm-hmm. I believe it was on the 11th that we it, is. It was the Wednesday of the second week of uh, March, which I think was March the right. 11th. And so we kind of got a jump on uh, a lot of other people, and maybe that has kept us a little healthier i mean i i I don't want to i don't want to call out anybody uh by name on the podcast but as i'm sure many of us have i know a lot of people very close to me who have this and you know in most cases just you know out and about right Mm -hmm. and and you come down with it um so we are very grateful for that. And um, let me just quickly say, so we can get down to business, remember that uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can order it. They are still uh, the, their uh, facility in the Bronx in here in New York City is still up and running because uh, food and beverage makers are essential services. So you can order Grady's uh, online. You can order it from Amazon. Uh, they're still delivering around the country. They have a they have a few different ways you can purchase it. You can you can buy, uh, you know you can you can buy the liquid. You can buy the 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 the, the uh, grounds to to make it yourself, and you can find that at Grady'sColdBrew.com, and uh, yeah. It's it's great stuff, and it's a gr- it's a good time to support small businesses. And as I said last week, that obviously applies uh, not only to Grady's Cold Brew, but to you know really any business that you any business 
that it is important to you is still around when this is over, you should support them. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really as simple as that because uh, especially small businesses, independent businesses survive on cash flow. Uh, and there's, you know, there's the federal stimulus bill and stuff like that, but still it, it will be hard for independent businesses, especially ones that um, rely on you know you going to a place a restaurant um, anything that has a physical dimension to it is gonna really struggle so support support businesses organizations that are important to you and it's important to you that they survive Absolutely. so David what are we talking so, about today like you mentioned Josh here in New York City we are literally in the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak in the country and Kate I wanted to turn to you after just setting it up just a little bit about a story you wrote last week about funeral homes and kind of uh, mortuary services and how that's a bit of an under the radar overlooked kind of aspect of, of just providing care and I guess kind of essential services uh, through this pandemic. And so in New York, I think overnight we crossed the 1000 death Mark, that's uh, deaths in New York City. I think it was maybe uh, 1,100 1, overnight. We had a few different surreal images this week. One was field hospital tents going up in New York City. Uh, that's kind of a surreal and disquieting sight. We also had the U.S. naval ship Comfort coming into New York Harbor. That's a, a hospital ship that has something like a 1,000 plus beds on it, I think. And the idea is that these, this hospital ship will, you know, provide capacity that, you know, hospitals who are overrun with coronavirus patients can't, can't sustain. And so I think it's anything from delivering babies to, you know, other kind of health complications that aren't related to the pandemic. So life is changing quickly in, in New York City and the, just the, I don't know, the visuals have been really striking. But Kate, you had written about kind of funeral homes around the New York City area, right? Kind of ringing the city mm -hmm. Um, right. And how they're kind of on the front lines, but not don't necessarily have all the protective equipment or just kind of essentials that they need. Tell us about your reporting and what you found. Right. So I think the regional scarcities of protective equipment have been pretty well reported on, especially for healthcare workers, for doctors and nurses who are trying to, in some cases, like reusing masks or having to jerry rig equipment, you know, while they're dealing with infected people. So a lot of the emergency supplies that are being rerouted or quickly produced are being streamlined to them, which makes sense. But then you have this whole other industry, they call it death care instead of health care, of people who are, you know, embalmers or transporting the bodies who also are, are coming into very close contact with bodies infected by coronavirus, not to mention the loved ones of those people who presumably have been living in close contact with them up to their death. And for people who basically didn't stockpile that equipment before things got bad, especially in the New York region, they're really struggling to try to handle the bodies without putting themselves at risk. And a real factor of this is that since coronavirus is new, the CDC doesn't even know how long the virus stays virulent in a dead body at this point. So there's a, a lot of guesswork. People don't know how dangerous it is during the embalming process. I mean, kind of gory, but uh, air comes out of the lungs, which could, you know, fling the virus up into the air. Um, but, you know, it's just 
they're at this crossroads of uncertainty and of being an industry that people don't like to think about. So I think they're kind of being a bit brushed to the side. Um, so there's that huge health component. And then there's also on a parallel track, they're taking huge economic hits because, you know, people in the funeral industry make their money off of funerals and viewings and memorials. And you can't gather in big groups anymore, which pretty well nullifies those processes. So a lot of funeral homes are trying to urge people to do direct burials or cremations, which means that they're you know, their limousines are sitting idle and their spaces that you would use for funerals and viewings are empty. So they're really seeing a direct result economically, health-wise, of the crisis. And then they're also trying to do this emotional work of, you know, if you have a loved one die right now, whether it be of coronavirus or something else, that, you know, that's a hard, grief-stricken time. And funeral homes are also trying to kind of walk the line of, doing that emotional care for people while also taking into account their own health and safety. The whole industry is kind of being shaken right now and it's a bit, I think, of a of an under-the-radar story. You know, one of many times in history, and I suspect in many parts of the world right now, the strategy in an in a in a major, major epidemic is is that bodies are are cremated at scale. You know, precisely to avoid uh, what you're talking about. Now, obviously, that is, for very good reason, not something that we are willing, that we are willing to force on people as a society. Um, but it does, you know, come to your point, you know, a lot of other, a whole group of people in danger that we are not even mostly thinking yeah. about. So this week we've had the Trump administration acknowledge kind of for the first time publicly some staggering figures of kind of best case scenario for coronavirus death tolls. It kind of started on Sunday. It got a little bit buried because Trump on Sunday announced that the social distancing guidelines would be extended through April 30th. He's finally backed away from this Easter timetable to reopen the economy and get everyone back to work. And I think it's because he was presented with uh, figures that if, you know, social distancing and mitigation efforts were basically thrown to the wayside, as many as 2.2 million Americans could die from coronavirus. And it's becoming clear that under the best case scenario, which means extreme mitigation efforts, social distancing, kind of shutting down large sectors of the economy, we are looking at anywhere from 100,000 to 240,000 people losing their lives in the U.S. Um, from this. And Josh, You've been doing some writing in the Ed blog about a study kind of modeling that seems to be sort of the basis for this. And, and you've gotten some, some feedback from, from readers. Tell us about the most recent one. It seems like, you know, we're talking about 100,000 to 240,000 people, which is on its face, just hard to wrap your head around the scale of that. I think the Vietnam War was what, about 50,000 people, 50,000 Americans? Uh, I think 58,000, um, something like that. And yeah, some, something in that. Yeah, and a, a reader who just wrote in who seems to have some expert kind of, you know, uh, expertise, I guess, in looking at the models is kind of, seems like he was trying to, he was casting doubt a little bit on whether we can successfully execute these extreme mitigation measures to keep the death toll in that 
best case scenario, which like we're saying is, is incredibly high to begin with. Can you tell us about kind of some of your writing? Yeah. So there's this, there's this, uh, uh, center that is affiliated with the university of Washington. Um, I think the university of Washington medical school, and they have put together a model and then they have also created a website where you can go to. And if, if, uh, if you're interested in looking at this, you just go and look at, um, posts of mine that are from a uh, beginning of the week that this that this uh, uh, podcast aired and in any way in any case you can go there and you can look at a model of what the arc of the epidemic is going to be like both in the United States as a whole and then individually in the different states now and that has death tolls it is mainly focused on hospital capacity which is obviously the the big sort of operational reality that that hospitals and and governments are dealing with and uh and and just in the last 36 hours or so the white house has sort of you know kind of glommed on to this study as kind of like the canonical model that is that is shaping their approach now it it is really you know, baffling, weird to think of, you know, at least a hundred thousand people dying as a sort of the rosy scenario, right? As the as the mm-hmm. as an optimistic look at this, but that does seem to be the reality that we are looking at. So, so one question I have had is that is that kind of the reason that they are looking at this? And 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 at this in moments like this, this isn't just a matter of you know trying to put the best face on it. Obviously, we all want to put the best face on it. You know, we 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 want to look for something that um, is is less terrible than other possibilities, but there have been a number of questions about this model. And if I can uh, sort of uh, capture the gist of them as a non-specialist on this, they really come in, in two, um, in, 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 there are two parts of the possible criticisms of this study. One has to do with sort of methodology about the models themselves. And that is that they are taking um, the arc of the disease in other parts of the world and sort of trying to fit the data that that we have here to that arc. And what some statisticians and epidemiologists are saying is that that arguably makes it a more of a kind of a mathematical model than an epidemiological model, and you're relying a lot on that curve being, you know, mean, meaningful and and reproducible. Um, the other point is that basically these models seem to rely on two or three months of severe social distancing and being able to execute that successfully. Now, we know that there are significant parts of the United States, even today, that are not doing full social distancing. And um, human nature is a stubborn thing. You know, people get tired after a while. They, 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 they can't keep it up. So there's a lot of questions whether even in the in a realistic best case scenario whether those are at all realistic assumptions so there are there really do seem to be um unfortunately there's there are some real reasons to think that may be an over optimistic outlook on both of those on on both a methodological 
front and also just a factual front. Can you really, is that kind of social distancing realistic? That point that you make, your second point, is something I've been kind of thinking about lately because um, I've been writing a lot about, you know, what will happen to the upcoming primaries, you know, with this in mind and, you know, kind of looking at South Korea, you know, as being touted as the model of a place that successfully, you know, got got the pandemic under control, quickly limited the number of deaths and it just like if you take a look at the measures that they instituted to do that, you know, it kind of makes you raise your eyebrows at people who are like, "Well, we can just do that here because it's like the populace in South Korea was so willing to give up their rights and their privacy in the name of quashing the pandemic in a way that I think you'd be very hard pressed to imagine Americans doing, you know, and part of that is just differing mindsets, you know, but things like, you know, they were, the government was tracking so closely positive cases of the virus and blasting that news out to everyone saying there was a case here. If you were here, go get tested. I mean, and also combined with the fact that they were testing early and often and at scale, which we still aren't. But, you know, that kind of, I think that goes to what you're saying is the agreement to, you know, do it like South Korea or China's kind of draconian locking people down. That's just not how we do things here or like the kind of limitations people tend to be willing to live under, which I think will probably have pretty grim. Even just anecdotally here, you know, in New York City, which I think we're all aware, you know, I think most New Yorkers are aware of it being a very serious situation and, um, you know, not even at its worst yet. You go outside, you look at Central Park, you look at Prospect Park, some of the big kind of open areas in the city, and they're kind of like bustling with people. It looks like, you know, if it's a nice sunny day, it looks like a any like a normal summer weekend kind of thing and you know I think everyone's trying to do their part but it is I mean it's hard enough to just walk down the street in New York without crossing pretty close to someone even doing your Mm -hmm. best but you know even here where I think everyone understands the severity of the situation you still have you know hundreds or thousands of people out in the park kind of playing frisbee or doing whatever close by each other so it's it's hard to it's hard to see you know, those types of severe social distancing measures that will be needed happening. Right. And I don't want to be glib about, you know, stupid Americans. It's hard. It's really hard to agree to be a hermit for right. the foreseeable future. We have no idea when it'll end. It's extended all the time, you know. It's it's also, but, you know, one, it's also, we, I think we're all rightly trying not to make kind of, you know, big generalizations about different societies. But certainly, like, mm-hmm. in South Korea, first of all, South Korea is relatively geographically small. It's it's dominated right. by the Seoul, um, you know, kind of greater metropolitan area. It's very culturally um, homogeneous. Um, it, has a, it has a unified political structure, not like a federal political structure that we have here where you're kind of mm-hmm. like, oh, is this one governor going to do something? So... There's, there's a lot to those things that make what you just described, Kate, possible. And one thing that I, that I think was in, was interesting in the difference between what happened in China and what happened in South Korea, is that China made like very 
draconian rules. Like you are not allowed mm -hmm. to leave your house, period. All these, you know, you're not allowed to leave the city, you're not allowed to leave the house. And in South Korea, they basically did few, if any, restrictions on mobility. And actually a lot of, I, I, I'm not totally sure if this has remained the case, but like restaurants were allowed to stay open. Um, probably a lot with delivery, but I think in some cases even you could go into them. So it was it was much less draconian in terms of like restrictions on people's movements. But as you said, there were there were just wholesale um, uh, you know things we would consider sort of like you know kind of just invasions of civil liberties and, mm -hmm. and um, you know people's privacy and stuff like that. And that was just how it how it worked um i mean and all on top of that in south korea they were sending out a hundred thousand tests per day across the country within two weeks of their first coronavirus case being discovered so i mean the absolute federal negligence of that you know kind of lost month between um you know end of january beginning of march where we didn't do mass testing at all is you know squarely why we are where we are now it's like you either have these draconian measures on one end or you are testing early and often and tracking the cases and we absolutely did not do that first right. piece you know even now it's like people are i mean nobody has the number of tests that they need so well there was that moment in the press conference yesterday you know the sort of the daily presidential press conference which Trump has gotten a lot of, I'm not sure you'd call it praise, but he definitely was in a different mode yesterday. I'm kind of a new yeah, tone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but there was a moment where I think it was CNN's Jim Acosta, um, you know, in a in a gentle but persistent way, saying, "Wouldn't we be in a better place if we had started testing in?" you know, week, you know, weeks ago, or maybe late January or in February or something like that. And it was a really weird moment because, uh, Dr. Birks and, 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 and uh, uh, Fauci, you know, kind of like, well, got to look forward and it's hard to say. And, and, um, the one thing Burke said, which I found interesting was she was basically saying, until we have serology tests, we will not know whether it was like in motion before, you know, before we before we got serious. Explain um, what that is, serology testing, that is, Josh. The, the, oh, yeah. Um, blood tests, which see if you have the antibodies. So to be able to retrospectively get a sense of the scope of the, scope of the epidemic. And I, I don't think... I don't think those tests directly tell you when people were sick, but you can probably mm -hmm. model it and stuff like that. And that is like technically true, I guess, but not really. You know, I mean, clearly we, we the fact that it started exploding just very briefly after we, we started testing shows pretty clearly that it was, it was in motion before we knew it. And there's even, right. uh, there have been, very direct genomic studies out of uh, one of these one of these places in Washington State, where they have actually mapped it, where they have mapped through the mutations of the genomes that um, that those those 
people who died in that assisted living facility were part of the outbreak that seemed to start with that guy who flew into Washington State and was quarantined in like mid-late January. So like we know, I mean, this is like, it, 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 it both just is sort of logically obvious and there's actually clinical data showing what is obvious is that it, it got started in this country in January. It, it built up a lot of velocity in, in February and it exploded in, you know, like the second week of, of March. And, and so <laughs> it, it's sort of, it's sort of obvious Trump is going to deny that, but they kind of had to not deny it, but said, say, well, we're still going to find out in the future because you can't say that because Trump won't let you say that. And they're, and they're doing this yeah. balance. Right. Act. It was, I mean, Fauci has admitted it before. It was like my, one of my very first days on Capitol Hill, first and last, but um, at the House Oversight Committee hearing, he said that, the state of testing is a failure, you know, that we don't have it set up to address. But even he, it was interesting, I think in that testimony you're talking about, even Mm -hmm. he kind of tried to lean into Trump's narrative about, you know, we were left with this terrible antiquated testing regime and now we've created a new one and and blah, 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 blah. Now, I think it it is, it's, it's clearly true. We were not ready for this. But that, is you know the, that really um i think that is a highly misleading narrative because yes almost mm-hmm. by definition we were not ready for something at this scale but we were certainly ready to get tests online much quicker probably a good 4 weeks before which is which is everything in this in this kind of setting so that you know it it is this funny thing it, at some level he is clearly having a very important influence on 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 the poli- you know on the unfolding policy here talking about tony fauci um and he has been able i mean i think everybody's kind of marveling at he's been able to do that without really self-raising right to a to a to a great mm-hmm. degree <laughs> but there's some significant uh you know, secondary raising there right. of, of, you know, not quite making things clear. Even Deborah Burks, uh, you know, who's the White House kind of coordinator on the coronavirus task force, went on the Christian Broadcast Network last week, I think, to kind of talk about how Trump has such a knack for the science and the data. And it's, make, it's made it so much easier <laughs> to kind of coordinate the response because Trump is such a savant with the, with the coronavirus numbers. I mean, I think... You know, rightfully, people who watch the briefings pay close attention to what Dr. Burks and Fauci are saying because they are, you know, medical experts. But even even people in that position sometimes have to go on television news and kind of sing the praises of of Trump in order to, I guess, keep the wheels moving. And Fauci, you know, for a while, there was reporting that Trump was kind of turning on him, souring on him a little bit. Uh, there was some, you know kind of QAnon people, some trolls on the right claiming or trying to make a case that he's like a Hillary plant and he's part of the deep state and all this stuff. Um, It seems like, I mean, who knows? It's hard to say what's happening behind the scenes, but uh, his job is still safe. It seems like he's, 
you know, still in that position, like you say, Josh, having a lot of influence over the president, both him and Burks. And just the number, you can't really spin those numbers, right? Even if even if we're at the best case scenario of 100,000 people, that is a humbling figure, I mean, for any president, right? I mean, and so it's hard to, how can you argue with that and not extend the social distance guidelines and not basically just keep locking things down? There's one facet of this story that hasn't been getting much attention that is kind of curious to me, which is um, the Times... I think last week unearthed that the HHS did a simulation last January to last August, I think. And it was modeled off of a highly infectious influenza originating in China coming here through travel. And like all the conclusions they drew were things that we're dealing with now, you know, that there would be bureaucratic confusion between the federal, state, local levels of who's making the calls um, and who's got jurisdiction. Um, that there would be specifically within the federal level jockeying between agencies to see who is in charge. And then, you know, perhaps most prescient of all, that there would be these huge equipment scarcities and that we don't have the means to ramp up manufacturing to produce more, you know, ventilators, et cetera, at a fast, large enough, um, you know, scale that we would need them. And to some degree, I think it's because these simulations are probably more common than the public knows about. But I I don't know. It seems pretty stark to me that Trump's administration was presented with this information so recently and that now, you know, some part of the party line is like, you know, gee, this this virus, I don't know. How do you prepare for something like this? The it's likes like, of well, which we've never seen. <laughs> some people in your administration did know. But Well, it's also, it, yeah. you know, the level of, the level of, history rewriting and just kind of nonsense is so huge. I mean, the the gist yesterday in that press conference was basically that there were some crazy people saying it was just a flu. It's definitely not a flu. And there were also some crazy people saying, write it out. But Trump knew it was crazy to write it out. And so he saved, you know, a million or two lives. But both of those things were things Trump was saying last week. And like, not like according sources tell us like we watched it we watched it happen on the tv <laughs> right so so if 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 that doesn't do it for you the the fact that someone somewhere did a study and blah 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 is just is is is, is well, just way too i'm agreeing with yeah. you kate i'm just saying that that, that, no, that at every I, level it's 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 all so crazy and and again it's one thing to say you know, to see it, to see an article in the Washington Post about there was a, there was a study and this and that and the other. But in mm-hmm. this case, sort of like, wait, it was you saying last week <laughs> we got to reopen by 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 Easter, yeah. and now you're saying you saved Pack us from those churches. crazy. I mean, what what is you know? I mean, no, I, you're totally right, and that's part of what is just baffling about this whole thing to me is that he's, you know, has a a bit of an approval bump right now. And I know people are saying like, that's minuscule compared to the usual rallying around the flag you have at a time of crisis, blah, blah, blah. But I'm just like, any bump is staggering to me. Like, who can watch him speak and take a source of comfort in that or believe anything that he says? He changes his story on a weekly basis. You only have to be casually paying attention to know that like a month ago, he was saying that 
it's just going to disappear. It's going to go away on its own. And then, like, a few weeks later, he says, you know, I, I always knew it was a pandemic. I knew the severity of this from the beginning. I just, it was baffling Yeah, I would to encourage me. our listeners to check out Josh's Twitter feed from this morning where uh, you kind of rounded up a bunch of video clips from over the past month or so. And, yeah, the evidence is all out there. Trump, one of the advantages of him being in front of cameras and journalists so often is that there is a record of what he said at every point throughout this, um, not to mention his Twitter feed. But, you know, there's the press conference when he declared a national emergency after kind of waffling for a couple of weeks. I think that was, what, uh, mid-March, I guess. Um, he was saying, no, I don't take any responsibility at all for the kind of the shitty job that his administration has done. So go check out those videos. I mean, they really speak for themselves. It's hard to even, you know, you can't, you can't say much more than that. And again, most of us, not just people like like the three of us who are in the news business, I mean, a lot of people, it, it's kind of helpful to go back and, and watch it again. But most of us heard those things <laughs> when they happened the first time, yeah. right? It, it is, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I, uh, I agree with your, your your point, Kate, about like what are people thinking. I, I, I do think um, there is this pattern in moments of crisis. You you it's almost like you want to impute it. It's a little it's 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 there's a cognitive dissonance. You don't. I mean, you're scared. You don't want to think. Also, the guy in charge of helping us is an idiot, and he's totally screwing up. That is that is a tough. That's a tough thing to feel, and so you sort of don't feel it. Um, and as, as, you know, other leaders or their, their approvals skyrocketing, it kind of is what it is. But again, it's, you know, w- one thing that struck me was in yesterday's press, I think it was in yesterday's press conference, they all sort of bleed together now. In yesterday's press conference, uh, Mike Pence, I think, you know, talked at the end or something like this, and he kind of went through, here's what we're doing here's how we're suffering, here's what to expect. And it was in that kind of Mike Pence, you know, that way he talks about serious things. And like, I'm no fan of Mike Pence, but but it was just sort of striking how it's not that hard just to say the right things. And it's actually kind of comforting, even to someone who thinks Mike Pence is an idiot, right? And so you see yeah. why most leaders do get this do get this bounce because it is reassuring to hear like okay you're right that is right glad you thought of that glad you're saying the right things <laughs> yeah. you know and um and it's yeah. just not that hard you know the kind of i mean you know what is it like 3 days ago or 2 days ago when he was accusing the hospital workers a lot of whom are going to get sick and a few of whom are going to die of stealing the masks. Like, what? Yeah. what? Like, you know, just, it's not that hard not to be a sociopath. I guess unless you are a sociopath, and then it is hard. So I got to <laughs> cut him some slack. Maybe it's, um, I mean, that's, it makes me think of Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, whose approval ratings have jumped a lot over the past several weeks. Oh my um, God. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, Everyone trying to like enlist Cuomo for president can relax for like two minutes, honestly. Yeah, he's someone, I don't know what your opinions of him are, Josh. I mean, he's someone who is kind of has a reputation of being a bully, right? He's, um, you know, I think some on the left are unhappy with, you know, his his approach and stance on Medicare and cuts and things like that. But um, I have to say his his daily press briefings have become kind of like must-see 
viewing because his tone and his demeanor are, you know, stand in such stark contrast to Trump. You know, he said yesterday something like, you know, it's difficult. I'm bored. We're all bored at home. And we're all wondering, when is this going to be over? And he said, the answer is, you know, nobody knows, but it's not going to be soon. And I don't know, just kind of that, his bedside manner, for lack of a better word, I think does kind of help, you know, power you through a little bit. And so I'm not surprised that he has, I guess, enjoyed some some bump in the polls and I guess some presidential yeah. speculation, but I, that's neither <laughs> here nor there. Yeah, I mean, you've also seen Biden trying to do that to some degree to kind of counter-program the, you know, this is what a Biden presidency would look like during this time. You know, he's been, even though there was some, like, Twitter speculation, the where is Joe thing, that was always confusing to me because I thought he was being pretty I think that was that was present. almost entirely like a a an intentionally deceptive campaign by, like, Bernie Twitter basically oh, okay. i mean like literally i think that you know it was yeah. it was you know after the point I, mean, I i think that's pretty clear that was a that was a an organized campaign by bernie twitter to sort of raise doubts about him maybe he's in a mm. in a you know he's his dementia's gotten so bad he's he's in a coma or you know that Right. That kind of stuff. Yeah, I think he's been because yeah, I mean he's been he was on MSNBC he's yesterday. He's, he's been on yeah, he's done interviews and all that kind of stuff. Well, and it totally makes sense because in some ways this is the moment where a Biden presidency makes the most sense. You know, I mean he's gotten so many plaudits for kind of his uh, emotional, you know, uh, agility. The that he's kind of the the perfectly made um, consoler in chief kind of thing. Um, but it is kind of interesting how even those efforts, it's just not a lot is breaking through right now. You know, it seems like, like I said, I've been writing about the primaries and stuff, and we are possibly headed for like some pretty catastrophic elections logistics wise. You know, I mean, I just published a story right before we got on about 11 states that are having their primaries June 2nd. And it's just who knows, you know, what the country is going to look like on June 2nd. And even the model you were talking about earlier, Josh, has all the peaks in that state before that date. But, you know, just because you're not in the days where most people are dying per day doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be in a place where people feel comfortable coming right. to polls, you know. Yeah, that, that that I think is something, and even going back to that study we talked about at the beginning, mm-hmm. of, the, at beginning of the episode, that the, the peak is really significant mainly as a sort of a hospital utilization issue like that is the point at which you need the most medical workers the most ventilators blah 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 but like 10 days after the peak tons of people are still going to be in the hospital right. and and conceivably even the deaths may lag the peak and and so um you know weeks after the peak you're still in a horrible situation and even you know, hopefully four weeks later when you're no longer in a horrible situation, that's because everybody's still in their house. Right. right. And so and so the peak is it's really important for for everyone I know you know this, but for for listeners to understand the peak is just a again, the max it it is really only significant at the maximal utilization of hospitals. So and and planning around that thing and the the sort of the period of overload that uh, 
the period of overload that you want to that you that you need to deal with right I mean and that's something I'm kind of curious if the climate we're in now even though I know the primary has been largely like put on hold right now but you know you have to vote at some point the convention is still scheduled for July as of now who knows if that'll stand but I mean as of when I spoke with the communications director at the DNC yesterday the delegate punishment date is still in place for June 9th that any states that hold their primaries after that run the risk of losing half their delegates to the convention. I can't imagine they would do that. I mean, there's already three states who have blown that deadline, including New York, but, you know. Yeah, I'm sort of, I'm sort of assuming they haven't done it just because it's a given that they're yeah. not, I mean, how could they, you know. I, I mean, what, why would they punish people for not being able to hold elections in a pandemic? But I am just kind of curious if this will have, is this what's going to push Bernie to finally drop out? I mean, not that they're campaigning in any real way right now, but if a, places are really worried that turnout is going to be decimated, that you can't hold in-person voting safely and you can't ramp up your vote-by-mail production or operations in time. I mean, I'll just put it this way. that One, one um, person I spoke to, an elections expert, said that he was really grateful that this happened at this point in the primary curve, that if it happened a few weeks earlier, we might be in a much more dire situation. And the fact that now, you know, Biden is, by all accounts, the presumed nominee, it kind of thankfully takes that factor out of it. No, totally. it, it's huge. I mean, it's really, it's, it is hard to imagine. Like, think about if a lockdown had happened right after I mean it's a, it's a little hard to imagine since it was only you know 3 days before super tuesday but but if it had a couple scenarios one scenario is go back to where it seemed like bernie was the nominee mm-hmm. but on the basis of three tiny states like no one else got to vote so so clearly the biden people are going to go wait a second you know yeah it kind of seemed that way but we're not going to call it quits based right. on these three unrepresentative states and or or Maybe, um, well, just just at any point where kind of where both sides could have very reasonably thought, "Hey, we were in this, we were in it to win. We're not, you know, you drop out, I'm not dropping out." I mean, right. that is a bad, bad, bad situation. And yes, it is. It is that sort of mild blessing that that for anybody with their eyes open, it's pretty clear Joe Biden was winning this thing. But yeah, it could have been much much worse yeah so speaking of elections i don't know kate i was just scanning your piece before we came on the air but um Mm -hmm. i don't think you did you touch on wisconsin in this piece or is it more about the kind of the the june dates yeah i was kind of looking at june 2nd as the the super delayed tuesday that's coming right but wisconsin is wisconsin is next week yeah still set to hold its primary and i think i just saw before we started recording there something Mm -hmm. like a million mail-in ballots requested they're talking about having the national guard man the polls because there's been so many volunteers basically backing out or unable to uh yeah it's been yeah it's just been an absolute mess there there are facing huge poll worker shortages um, to the point where they've considered shuttering polls, the biggest polling areas, you know, which of course are going to be in mostly urban centers where there's more risk and more people. And those are people who tend to vote Democrat. So you have that political bend. And then on top of it, you have the Democratic governor, um, Tony Evers, who's kind of battling with the Republicans right now. And the Democrats were kind of 
you know, pushing, let's expand our vote by mail infrastructure, even though that wasn't a perfect push either, because it's, that's really hard and expensive. And it's really hard to do quickly in any kind of a reliable way. But so they are pushing that Republicans are saying, no, let's just push on, let's have our in person election. And then Evers, you know, who was kind of 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 that boat as well of the let's not delay, let's just get it over with. Uh, He suddenly, I think like two weeks ago, said, you know what, never mind, we should mail out everyone an absentee ballot, which has everybody screaming because you're like, that's not logistically possible. Um, Yeah. So anyway, they're just, it's kind of reminiscent of Ohio, I guess, where they to some degree push, kind of kick the can down the road. And then the governor only made a statement to try to delay the election 11 hours before it started. And that just completely put the state into a, a place of turmoil. But yeah, we have Wisconsin next week, not looking much better. Yeah. I w- it seems to me an open question as to whether it actually does go through. I know that Bernie Sanders campaign is calling for it to be postponed. Um, I, I don't I mean, know. I mean, it just feels like places in the Midwest, you know, they're a bit behind somewhere like, Mm-hmm. In New York or California or Washington, and who knows what the situation will look like in a week there. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm genuinely curious if it will actually still go on or not on that day. I mean, just coming from the perspective of writing about all those states that are planning their primaries June second, which again, some models have the peak of this being done by. I talked to like multiple public health people who were just very skeptical about if in-person voting will be a possibility or wise by then by june 2nd you know so i just can't imagine when we're this close to things heating up that they'll send people to the polls slash that anybody will yeah go yeah you know it it is it it is really hard to imagine and even beyond the the overwhelming public health point just the fact that this does not affect people the same across the age age spectrum Mm -hmm. is a massive massive thing you know, like let's let's imagine that um, that which I think we're all agreeing would be a terrible mistake. You did hold this. All people basically over sixty or over sixty-five, and certainly people with any kind of serious health condition, they're all being told, "Don't even leave your house." Like not even just kind of sort of stay in place and go for a walk. Like mm-hmm. don't leave your house at all. So like, are you going to have it where the you know voting of of people over age 65 goes down by like 60 percent i mean that's crazy i mean that is not a legitimate election right that's just massive disenfranchisement and you know if you're looking at it from a political kind of machiavellian lens republicans are the ones that are pushing to keep the election when it is and have it in person and you know republicans enjoy a lot of uh, popularity with certain segments of the older population. So it's, you know, they have, I mean, not in the primary right now, but there's a Supreme, a state Supreme court seat up and thing, you know, down ballot races that they do have horses in. So yeah, I can't imagine they go forward next week. I'm not even sure that the June 2nd primaries will go forward seeing as the only thing they're really pushing up against are these kind of arbitrary DNC deadlines and, to some degree, you know, you want your nominee to be able to campaign against Trump for, you know, a good amount of time. But when when your options are push it down, push it down the road like a month or have it now and risk, you know, the terrible headlines that would come out of like Wisconsin outbreak triggered by primary election. That seems like a pretty clear cut choice to me. Yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a good place to end it. Um, keep us posted, Kate, on what happens with all of that. And we'll let you all Definitely. know about Wisconsin in a week. I mean, yeah, we'll see what happens. But it seems it just doesn't seem like a good idea. But we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it seems like a terrible idea, <laughs> like a catastrophically yeah, bad idea. Yeah. And on three or four different vectors, yeah. like yeah. illegitimate election, mass outbreak on the scale of New York. I mean, yeah, it's totally. like a bad, bad, yeah. bad. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, um, as a reminder, Josh, you want to take us take us through the, the yeah, Grady's so field remember, real quick? Uh, gr- yeah, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is the sponsor of our podcast, uh, and you can find you can order them online at Grady'sColdBrew.com, or you can also order it on Amazon. Uh, so it's great, and it's a good time to uh, support them. And as I said before, to support all local slash small businesses that matter to you, because a lot of these businesses are going to be struggling, and a lot of them won't survive. So that is important across the board, not just uh, not just for Grady's, but also for Grady's. Yeah, Grady's, Grady's, Grady's. So yeah, <laughs> absolutely. All right, take care, you guys. Talk to you soon. Cool. All right, Later. thanks, Bye. guys.